Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading scripture for you today. And today, um, the passage is from Luke 22, 7 to 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And as he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the wine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who, ha- who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of God. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Mark, and uh, it's great to be with you here. Part number four of this series, Beyond Just Belief. And uh, really, I would love to summarize what we've been talking about. But if you're kind of coming in the middle of the movie, literally, you know, part four of eight, you just got to go online and got to catch up because there's just so much we've been covering. Uh, it's been awesome. I can say that without pride because BJ's done two thirds so far. And then after today, well, you can decide. But hey, uh, it's, been, it's been just an incredible journey. I've loved it. I mean, if, if you've been getting anything out of it, I mean, BJ and I have just been getting knocked around because we've just spent hours and hours sitting in it. So it's been, it's been so good. I've just been loving it. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you and your faith. And uh, I just want to start by telling you a quick story. This week, uh, I was at the gym. As you can tell just by looking at me, I don't do that often. Uh, but I was at the gym. I'm in the change room, and you can tell this is the kind of gym I go to. There's a TV in the change room, which one just highlights how much guys can't multitask, because you just kind of see guys that are kind of like, right? It's just like, okay, if you want efficiency, that's not the way to do it. And so I'm in there, and of course, they have music videos playing the whole time, and I catch this one music video, because it just kind of, it just catches my eye. And it's, if you know anything about pop culture, you know, there's this Canadian artist named The Weeknd, and he's kind of blowing up, and he has this music video, and it's, it's kind of this strange music video. It's a song, Starboy, and he's basically waving this neon red cross around, kind of tearing up a house. And it's, it's just kind of like, I remember like going online, like what, what's the sim- symbolism? And kind of re- just kind of understand it. But it was just, it was kind of strange to me on a geek level because I'm just like, here's this guy waving a cross around and actually wearing a cross. And I just like, the, the geek history geek side of me was kind of like, I wonder what would happen if you could go back in history and talk to people 2,000 years ago and tell them what you were seeing. 
I wonder what happened if you go back 2,000 years in history to the Roman world where Romans showed everybody who was boss by nailing the worst of the worst criminals to a cross. That the way they forced people to submit and the way that they reminded them that they were in charge and that the others were not was by this horrible method of killing people called crucifixion. That it was a reminder, it would stay up sometimes for days at a time and it was a reminder to all the people that walked by that we are in submission to the Roman Empire and we better not mess up or else. I can't help but wonder, the nerd inside me wants to go back in history and say, hey, do you know that in 2,000 years from now, rap artists are going to have chains with that symbol, and hip-hop artists are going to have tattoos with it, and country artists are going to have belt buckles with it? And you know what? I just, I would just love to hear the response, because I think the first response would be, what's a rapper? You know, that's just natural. I get that. I, you know, and we kind of dialogue hip-hop and country and, you know, it's like, you know, you know in 2,000 years, not everything has gotten better. And, you know, we kind of have that whole conversation. And then I just, they just kind of pause and just say, how did that happen? How is it that a symbol that was meant for death is now celebrated and worn and even given to children? It's strange. It's, like, it's almost like going forward in time 2,000 years and finding out that they're wearing chains and tattoos and belt buckles of the electric chair or lethal injection needles. It's just strange. And you, you often, especially as Christians, you know, we love the cross, we wear the cross, we sing about the cross. And we never kind of pause and just think, this is pretty graphic. It's kind of weird. It's kind of morbid, you know, to constantly be reminding ourselves and our children about death. And if you ask Christians, they'll tell you, well, you know, the death, it's so beautiful. You know, the cross is so beautiful because Jesus died on it for our sins. And you kind of pause and it's like, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, he was, he was saving us. Oh, okay, so the cross is about saving, saving us from, what, well, from our sins. And, you know, so that, we, you know, we don't have to go to hell. Just quietly put that one in. And you just kind of, you just have that conversation, you just kind of realize, like, ah. Oh. And they talk to other people and they're like, well, the cross and Jesus dying and all that. I mean, that's not the important part. The important part was Jesus. And his love, VJ preached about that last week. Wasn't that an awesome message? Just talking about the incarnation and what happens when God steps into the world in human form. It was incredible. People just say, in fact, my dishwasher repairman was just telling me, he's like, we just, we just need to love like Jesus. I think that's really the answer. And I don't know about all this death and atonement and sin stuff and blood being shed, but if we could just live like Jesus, I mean, that's really the important thing. Then the whole world would be different. The interesting thing, though, is that Jesus didn't seem to believe that. I mean, the passage that was just read for us, and thank you, by the way, for reading that, it's all about Jesus' last moments with his disciples. And he has the opportunity to say, okay, guys, I'm about to die. So here's what I want you to remember. Remember that time, the guy who couldn't walk, now he's walking, the guy who couldn't see, now he sees that woman that everyone thought was dead, now she's living, the people who didn't have anything to drink, then they drank the best wine, remember that, what's up? No, he says, I want you to remember how I died. In fact, he breaks bread, and he says, every time you break bread, three times a day, that's what they did, and every time you drink wine, I want you to remember that my body was broken and my blood was shed. I want you to remember how I died. It's the thing we would never, ever do, Jesus does. It's the time when we are at our weakest. It's the time when we have no control. In fact, when someone does die, we tell them, don't remember these last days. You know, how bad it was, how painful it was, how out of control they were, some of the things they said when they weren't in their right mind. Don't remember the death. Remember the life. Jesus lives this amazing life. In fact, the best life, the life that should have been remembered, and in fact was. But he says, don't, doesn't even say, remember my life. He just says, remember my death. As John Stott so famously said, he said, if our faith in Jesus does not include the cross, it is not the faith of Jesus. That somehow to get away from his death is to get away from everything that he apparently believed that he was here to do. 
And so as Christians, we need to pay attention to the cross because Jesus wanted us to pay attention to the cross. And as hard as it is to talk about death, Jesus talked about death, so we better pay attention. And so that's kind of our topic for today. Not, not any heavy lifting at all. See, the interesting thing, the reason why this is such a hard topic is because so often it's hard to get our minds around have a, an intern. He's just kind of finished four years of Bible college, four years of studying this stuff. And he just came to me the other day and he's like, Mark, how does the cross actually work? I'm trying to get my head around it. I just can't. Like, how does blood actually solve our problem? Like, you know, we sing about how precious the blood is. Like, how does it actually work? I'm like, bro, you have more schooling than I do. You should tell me. Like, what's going on here? And he's like, but, but how does it work? It's just like, how does this actually play out? I was at a a seminar, VJ and I were doing this, this uh, panel discussion. It was, it was called Jesus is the Answer, but what's the question? All about, you know, if we're trying to share Jesus with the world, what, what is the thing that actually will resonate? And this pastor, I remember his first question, he's like, so I was out riding a motorcycle with some guys from the neighborhood just trying to, you know, be with people who don't know Jesus. And uh, after the ride, went back to their house and just kind of hanging out. And one of the guys there just kind of lights up a joint, just kind of, you know, starts smoking. And he turns to the pastor and he's like, isn't life awesome? Isn't it just perfect? And the pastor kind of looked at us and he said, what is it about Jesus on the cross that is good news to this guy? What is it about death that is somehow a message that I want to share? What is it that this guy needs saving from that will actually resonate? It was a fantastic question. It was an honest question. It was a question that if you're honest and I'm honest, at some time, at some level, we felt that wrestling. Like, how does this actually solve our problems? How does death, how does blood, how does sacrifice actually make it all land? See, the, the thing that we often forget when we just say, because, you know, as Christians, we always just use this kind of language, the cross saves us, we're saved by the cross, is that when you use the language of saved, to save something is to save someone from something and to something. You don't just save someone from drowning, you allow them to continue their life afterwards. If you're going to save someone, you have to convince them that they're being saved from something and to something. A friend of mine, he's worked in prisons for years as a, a crisis counselor with young offenders, and often he gets thrown into situations where he has to basically, on a human level, he's the only thing between an object and that kid's life. They're just, they have no more reason to live in their perspective. And while he's been bit and kicked and spit on and everything, he said, Mark, the reason I continue to do that job is because of the opportunity I get in that moment to try and convince them that they need to save their life. And I said, so what do you do in that moment? He said, I spend every ounce of energy trying to convince them that they have a reason to live. Because I can't just tell them they shouldn't die. I need to tell them why they need to live. If we're going to talk about being saved, we have to know very clearly what are we being saved from and what are we being saved to. And so to quickly summarize week two, because that was kind of the, the turning point in the story where we finally started to kind of resonate and say, okay, that kind of explains my reality. You see, if you remember week one, VJ talked about created and beautiful creation, a triune God, a Trinitarian God, a God who's in community, creates us out of the overflow of his love and community and we're communal beings. And then we learned in week two that we actually have this, that we have this sin nature that is birthed in us and it was put there after Adam and Eve sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, it wasn't this no-no or this arbitrary rule that they broke. It was, if you remember, it was breaking trust with God. They basically just ate fruit and said, we don't know if we can trust you, God. We'd rather go our own way. And we kind of just summarize it to say that the reason why that was such a big deal is because broken trust, as you see on the screen, broken trust 
is the death blow to every relationship. And then again, when Adam and Eve stopped trusting God, it unhinged them from a relationship with their life-giving source. You see, the problem in that moment was that they disconnected themselves from God. And then we saw kind of what people have uh, historically called the fall. They fell out of relationship with God and they were cursed because of it. Not because God said, well, now you're gonna pay. It was this way of saying, now that you've broken relationship with me, here's what happens. And we kind of see this breaking of relationship with God, breaking a relationship with other humans, breaking relationship with ourselves. We're insecure. We have uh, all of these different issues that we have. We have broken relationship with creation and with work. All these things kind of flowed out of this broken problem that we had. And the problem, the thing that we need kind of saving from is the fact that we've been pulled out of relationship with God. And the thing that we all kind of agreed was whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in this sin story or not, the thing that kind of resonates at the core of our being is we sense this idea of curse. We sense having broken relationships with others, broken relationship with God, not being able to kind of make it all right, not being able to get rid of the, the shame that we experience, the guilt that we experience, the insecurities that we experience, that we've felt all those things. And the Bible explains it very clearly as the reason you experience death and brokenness on so many levels is because you've disconnected with your life source. You've disconnected with the creator of the universe. As we kind of talked about, no amount of work, no amount of school, no amount of good works would ever get us away from that sinful nature that we continue to do what we don't want to do. We continue to move towards death, not simply physical death, but death in our relationships, death to ourselves, death in all these different ways. It has come totally in our world and we desperately, desperately, desperately need saving from and we cannot do it on our own. We desperately need to be reconnected with our life source that ultimately, if you were to summarize it, the thing we need saving from is the fact that we've been disconnected from God. And the thing we need to be saved to is to be put back in relationship with our Heavenly Father. That that would solve every problem that you've ever had, every problem that your neighbors have ever wrestled with. It would put us perfect relationship with the perfect God and perfect relationship with our creation. Jesus actually agreed with that. There's a famous passage, maybe you've heard it, John 3.16. And in that passage, Jesus highlights the exact same thing. Jesus is it's in the early part of his ministry, and uh, this guy comes to him, a religious leader, his name's Nicodemus, comes in the middle of the night, kind of secret, like, I, I don't want my friends to know, but he just kind of comes, he's like, Jesus, I, there's something about you that seems out of this world. Like, I can't get my, my, my head around it, but there's just something about you that is just incredible. And so Jesus starts talking to him, and he kind of just says, listen, you you need to be reborn, and it's just like, how do I get reborn? It's, like this, it's fascinating conversation. It's not for today, but the thing I just want to highlight, verse 316, because we say it all the time, and we don't realize that this saved from and saved to is right in the most famous verse of all of Scripture. This is Jesus talking. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's speaking about himself. He's like, God brought me into the world. Look what he says, that whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life shall not deal with the ultimate consequences of being out of relationship with their heavenly father. That's what perishing is. And instead we'll have eternal life. Be put back in relationship, eternal relationship with our heavenly father, the way it was supposed to be, the way we were all meant to be. You kind of see that part about perishing and all throughout the scriptures, there's so many word pictures Jesus uses to describe it. And if you have questions about that, it's like, what does that mean to perish and hell and all that stuff? I'll give you VJ's cell phone number after, okay? He'd be so happy to answer all your questions. But it's just, uh, summarize it, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good at all. And you want to stay as far away from it as possible. And eternal life sounds amazing. 
And when we continue to see the images of Scripture of what eternal life is, it's put back in relationship with God. It says in John, it says this idea of what is eternal life? It is to be with our Heavenly Father, to know Him who created us. The bottom line, the thing we're trying to be saved from and saved to is we're trying to reverse the curse. We're trying to reverse the fact that we distrusted God and moved out of relationship with him, and we're trying to save ourselves by putting ourselves back in relationship to him. And everything else that you find broken in the world would be fixed when that happens. That's the kind of narrative that may resonate with someone. But when we just have the religious words that we kind of throw, oh, he saved us from sin, it's like, what does that mean? It's like, I don't know, it's just, but it sounds spiritual and all that. We just kind of get down to it. It's like the death and the brokenness that you experience all day is a thing you need to be saved from. And the only way to save you from it is to be put right back in relationship with your heavenly Father. How does that work? How does Jesus' life do that? Jesus didn't say in that moment. He's like, Son of Man came to give his life so that you wouldn't have to perish, but you could live for eternity. Jesus, how did it work? He, he didn't tell Nicodemus. He didn't lay it out. He didn't have a whole plan. He didn't have his atonement theology all figured out there. He didn't spell it out at least. It wasn't there. It was somehow at that moment, we just kind of know and Nicodemus understood that somehow the giving of life leads to life. He doesn't say how. This whole topic, the one that we're covering today, is called atonement. It's the topic of explaining how we move back into relationship with God, that all the things that you find in the scriptures, all the things that God did to put us back in relationship to God is what you call atonement. What does the word mean? It means to cover over sin, to blot out sin. When they were trying to translate this idea of being able to blot out sin, to undo all the things of sin, when they tried to bring that into the English language, there wasn't even a word that would cover it. So they made up a word. That's where we got atonement from. It was just Bible translators. They needed a word. They made up the word atonement. Do you know where the word comes from too? words, at one mint, at one. It was this idea of this whole process of being put back in relationship to God, to being one with him. That's what was covered in this idea of atonement. And so you ask, okay, so how does Jesus's death make us at one? How does that actually work? You know, blood, sacrifice, how does that work? That's the whole topic, and that's what we're going to try and answer today. Now, just to warn you, you may leave here today not having all your answers answered. There may still be some mystery. You may still have some what I call heaven questions, the questions you're going to ask God when you get to heaven because they make no sense now. That's totally fine. I'm actually okay with that because today I'm not so much focused on the how does it work in all the little detail and giving you a nice framework, but what is it that works and what is it that it, does it bring us to because that's the thing that seems to be very, very crucial, important. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus doing and what is he saving us? He's saving us from something and to something. He's saving us from the destruction of our choice to distrust God and all that sin has brought. And what is it saving us to? At oneness with God or eternity. Reason we pay attention is because it solves our greatest problem that we've been trying to solve ever since Adam and Eve chose to distrust God. And we've had that in our nature and been unable to solve it. So let's go back to Jesus. Jesus kind of comes into the world. You saw John 3.16. He's kind of talking. He's like, here's why I've come. John the Baptist, when he's introducing Jesus, Jesus kind of comes. He's like, look. He actually calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus later, Matthew 20, he says, I came to ransom, to free captives. That's kind of the idea of ransom is to buy back a slave. I came to ransom slaves. 
Many people thought, you know, the Messiah, the Savior would come like a warrior, or, you know, we just sang like this idea of a lion, and yet it's this, it's this juxtaposed image of it's a lion, it's a lamb. He comes in power, and yet he comes in sacrifice. And you start, the people are starting to get these images, and they're not quite getting it. And we discover, you know, as Jesus kind of gets later on his life, nobody understood that his life needed to be given. In fact, the disciples, if they had understood this, that, hey, if God would just come into the world and die for us, we would be okay, they didn't get it. That's why when the soldiers came to get Jesus, they start fighting back. These guys have been taught not to fight, don't be violent, pulls out a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. They are desperate to not let Jesus die. They didn't understand that a life needed to be given to somehow solve this issue. It didn't make sense to them at the time. And then Jesus conquers death. We're going to learn next week about the resurrection. He, he raises from the dead. And still his disciples are like, don't leave us. Don't leave us. We want you to stay. And he's like, don't, don't you understand? And, and the thing we discover in Scripture is that God continues to reveal more and more of himself as you continue to go through the narrative. And they continue to be drawn into this mystery and understand more of who he is, the same journey that we're invited to understand more and more of. And then Peter, you look at the book of Acts, you know, the beginning of the church, and he's kind of preaching. So the power of the Spirit came on him, and he starts preaching. And he actually starts talking about, hey, this, this death that Jesus did, this is important. It was for the forgiveness of sins. There's nobody else that you can be saved from. But Peter doesn't lay out a whole atonement theology and have here are all the points, and here's what happened, and here's what happened. He literally just says, there's no other name in which you can be saved, so repent, and this is where you'll get forgiveness from. That's kind of his message. And then it says thousands of people did. They didn't understand the how. They didn't even, maybe they did. They asked, okay, how is it that blood exactly does this, and how is it that his dying saved? It's just like, there was kind of this idea of it's just, it was clear what had happened, couldn't figure out the how, and yet people were still following in response to a guy who'd come, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again. They were living in response to that. They were moving in trust or in faith towards it. History continues. If you keep reading the New Testament, you continue to just see picture after picture, word picture after word picture of descriptions of what happened when Jesus died and why Jesus needed to die. Some of the things you discover is that he paid debt, that justice was paid, that there's no longer any guilt, that we're somehow cured from the slavery to sin, that we are restored and reconciled into a relationship with God. We are made blameless. And there's, there's just picture after picture of an undoing of the curse that we saw in the beginning of creation over and over again. And yet the question comes up, it's like, well, how does this happen? How does death do this? How does one perfect person dying actually bring the whole world back at one with God? How does it bring us back into reconciled relationship to God? And so today what I want to do is I want to kind of pull out a classic text. There's so many texts, but a classic text that kind of spells this out. I kind of call it like Paul's theological manifesto. He just kind of just kills it. He just lays it down. He makes it so clear in some ways and in other ways. He just kind of leaves us with more questions. So I'm going to go through it and then kind of summarize it after. Paul, uh, this book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 20. If you want to turn to the book of Romans or flip there on your device, that'd be great. So Paul says, therefore, as my pastor taught me growing up, he says, whenever you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Tell you that before, right? <laughs> Very smart. Okay. So basically, Paul was kind of in the beginning of Romans. He's talking about, hey, I have this amazing news. It's the gospel, which simply means good news to tell you, okay, that God saved us. And then he kind of, it's almost like Paul takes a tangent and kind of realizes he's like, wait, wait, wait. 
I can't tell you what you're saved from unless I tell you what, it, uh, I can't tell you what you're saved unless I tell you what you're saved from. And so 118, he kind of then goes on this, what I call a tangent, and just spends like a chapter and a half explaining, here's the problem. He re-explains, here's the brokenness of humanity. Here's the thing that you see in all your relationships. And if you're honest, in the mirror, that you do what you do not want to do and what you want to do, you cannot do, that you don't live up to the glorious image that God created you for and you know it. It's the reason why you point out flaws in other people. And if you're honest, you see the flaws in yourself because you know you're not the image you were meant to be. And Paul just kind of says, and there's nothing you can do about it. He says, so there's good news, but to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. And then he says, okay, so therefore, and then we pick up Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Paul's basically saying, right living and right standing with God is not going to come because you followed the rules. There's no way that you following the rules is going to get you there because really you can't follow them perfectly. And the religious people who thought they could follow them perfectly, the thing that happens when you think you got everything is then you become righteous and prideful and you're no longer humble and you're just really, if we're honest, a jerk. And so in this moment, he's like, listen, rules aren't going to save you because they don't make you good. He says, rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That when you understand God's laws and when you're gut level honest, you just realize that you are a sinner, and you're stuck there, and you can't seem to get your way out. And then Paul says this. He says, but now, signifying something new, apart from the law, apart from good works, the righteousness, the plan to make us right with God, of God, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But now something new is happening. It's not a plan B. It's not because God messed up or he forgot or he didn't have a strategic plan. It's been all throughout history. The prophets, you look back thousands of years, you see it all throughout the scriptures. God had a plan, and now that plan is becoming ever so clear. And then this is where he kind of just drops this theological manifesto. I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll unpack it, because in the first reading, you can never quite understand it. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Did you just put that all in like two sentences, Paul? It's like Paul just has like a geek out moment and he's just so excited. He's just like, this is what it is, this is what it is, and righteousness, and it's just like, slow down, Urkel, right? Like you just gave us way too much and we can't quite comprehend that. We have to kind of slow down and highlight words and try and understand them. I've kind of highlighted them for you. It's like this righteousness, this right relationship, this thing that we need to be in relationship to God, the thing that we so desperately need. And then he says it comes through faith, through trust. Isn't that interesting? It's like trust is the thing that got us in this mess. And now he's saying, and so trust will bring you back into it. He talks about justice that we're freely justified. You think, justice is never free. Someone always has to pay. How does, how does that work? It's like, how are we being put in right relationship and only because we believe, but we didn't have to do anything, we didn't have to pay for it. That goes against everything because, I mean, you know in your relationship, someone does something wrong, someone's got to pay. How does that work? It's freely justified. And then he says, redemption. It's like we're, we're actually freed. It's slaves who've been freed, that's redemption. So he says, we're redeemed by Jesus. I kind of wrote a little summary of what I kind of gather Paul's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus has exercised justice, freed us from slavery to sin, put us back in relationship with God, and it costs, no costs nothing but our 
trust or our, our faith. You say, well, how does this happen, Paul? And then he, he kind of tells us, he said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, of a covering over of sin, of a blotting out of sin, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. How does that work, Paul? How does it work? How does the blood and the, you know, and how, it doesn't quite laid out, but then here's what we gather. Let me, let me put it again. It's not just Jesus' exercise, but Jesus' death somehow exercised justice, freed us from slavery to sin, put us back in relationship with God, and it costs us nothing but our trust. How, how does it work? We're not sure. One thing we know in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, God had taught his people that he's willing to accept a perfect sacrifice to cover over sin, that he will lay down mercy when that happens, that that's there, that he's willing to accept a perfect substitute, but it, it leaves lots of questions. How exactly does it work? It doesn't quite say in the passage. The passage later goes on to say it's, it's God's righteousness, it's his justice. He kind of says why he did it and all those things, and then he kind of goes on to, for a whole chapter talking about faith and how it works, and you have to understand that part. And then he kind of just hits the bottom line in chapter 5 and doesn't say how. Again, he says, but what? He says, therefore, talking about, again, everything that he just laid out, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Bottom line is Jesus' death made peace with God for us. It brought us back in relationship with God. What happened? How, how, how did it work? And, and there's so many, and please don't get me wrong, okay, but there's so many ways in which we lay this out and we systematically, and there's some beautiful textbooks, I've been just reading them for the last few weeks, of how it all kind of lays out, and yet there's this element of mystery. In fact, last few weeks, I've just been kind of reading and reading and, and just kind of give you an image of just a, a glimpse of what it's like to kind of study this topic. Okay, here's kind of my, my, my office. Okay, that's how I write a sermon, okay? It's, this is what happens when you have ADHD and you can't sit still, okay? So it's just like, I just kind of like was just studying, 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 pulling out all the passages of scripture and I'm just like laying them all out about, here's what the scriptures say about atonement and what Jesus did on the cross and what it accomplished for us, okay? And not only is that there, but like there were so many other images. There's images of ransom, of being redeemed, of being no longer condemned, of Jesus being an example for us that we're not our own, that somehow we were bought at a price, that it blots out our sin, that it's a new covenant, that somehow it's all about the blood, that it's an offering and it's a sacrifice. You just kind of go through it. And you know, this is, this is a stack of things I couldn't even fit on my board. And I'm like, I actually sent a picture. I'm like, Vijay, how do I do this in like 35 minutes? I don't know how to explain this. The more I studied it, the more I just wanted to hit my head against the wall and say, I can't get it. Like every time I understood a new word picture, I'm like, I think I got it. And then I'd read another one. I'm like, it's, it's bigger. There's more here than I can even comprehend. There's more than I can get my head around. It's just huge. The more I studied it, the less clear it got. I was like, why is this? It should be getting more clear. It always works this way. The more I study, the more the clarity I get, the easier it is to preach on Sunday. Not with this topic. It was the exact opposite experience for me. The more I tried to just simplify it really quickly, the more I realized it's not what the New Testament authors were trying to do at all. The New Testament authors were not trying to say, it's this plus this plus this, and there you go, there's the good news. No, they were just trying to say, do you understand how big it is? Do you understand how much was accomplished there? Do you understand that you cannot get your head around what happens when God steps into the world and gives his life for you? Do you understand how much he loves you that he would sacrifice? And over and over and over again, these images are given. As my pastor Sunder said when I called him yesterday, he's like, it's just like there's these spotlights that give us glimpses of the majesty of God and we just can't get our heads around it. 
And so Paul's desperately trying to communicate it to all these different cultures, and he has all these different word pictures to use, and he's just trying to say it's just so magnificent that it almost goes beyond words, but of course we try and explain it. That really, the more you understand the atonement, the more you don't understand it, and the more you're drawn in to understand more of it. I realized that if I tried to narrow it down, I was taking away the mystery and the majesty of what happened there. Each Each image that is given leaves something to be more understood and something to still be explained. Tim Keller, in his book, Center Church, he kind of summarized it. He says, all the images about the atonement, he, he, he you know, for better or for worse, says, I think I can kind of summarize it in five images. And I just want to kind of read those images for you. Not to say these are perfect. In fact, you'll find people in the room who kind of like, oh, that's an overemphasis of this one, or you took that image too far, because remember, no image is perfect, right? You, every one of them breaks down a little bit. But let me just read to you one man's summary of kind of this blow up on my sermon board, okay? Here it is. He says, there's a language of battlefield, that there was a battle that was won, that Christ fought against the powers of sin and death for us. He did pow- defeated the powers of evil for us on the cross. There's a language of marketplace. Christ paid the ransom price, the purchase price to buy us out of indebtedness. He freed us from slavery and enslavement. Okay, it's an image. It's saying now we are no longer, whatever happened on the cross, if you understand it or not, you need to understand that now we are actually free from slavery. We are no longer slaves to sin, okay? You push this image too far, it gets confusing. And people did that, theologians did that hundreds of years ago, and they're like, okay, so we were bought at a ransom, we were bought from a slave keeper. It's like, who did God pay with Jesus' life? Who was he paying? Was he paying? He must have been paying the devil. And he's kind of, that's kind of where they landed. They're like, yeah, that's it. He was paying the devil. Like the devil like somehow had some sort of control over God. Like he was some loan shark. And God's like, I can't pay. I can't pay. Fine, take my son. Right? You see, the images are beautiful, and yet they break down after a while because they're not perfect. Continue. The language of exile. Christ was exiled. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taken out of relationship, the thing that we should have been. He substituted himself for us. He experienced that so we wouldn't have to. He was cast out of the community so we who deserve to be banished could be brought in. He brings us home. There's a language of temple. Christ is a sacrifice that purifies us, allows us to draw near to a holy God. He makes us clean and beautiful. I still don't get that part. I know, I know he accepts a perfect sacrifice. And I'm like, okay, all the sin of the world, the perfect God, I, I get, I've read all the things and I'm just like, I can't get it. I'm like, I think that's actually the beautiful part. It keeps going the language of the law court. Christ stands before the judge and takes the punishment we deserve. How do you kind of, how do you make sense of this? Dr. Roger Nichols says, in every image, Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He is the perfect substitute in every image. It's the marketplace, it's the law court, it's slavery, whatever it is. Jesus steps in our place to do what we could not do. Because he was perfect, he was righteous, he was holy, it was righteous for unrighteous. You just keep reading, you just keep discovering more and more of why he was the perfect gift that saved us from what we were to what we needed to be. The fact that we don't have clarity on it and we have all these images that are giving us glimpses of it, 
I think is amazing because I think it just resonates with so many different people and so many different cultures in so many different ways. You see, when we try and distill it down to one of these images and just beat it down to say things it wasn't meant to say, I think we lose the mystery of it, we lose the majesty of God, and we lose the ability for this truth to actually be truth that impacts people's life. Think about that biker, you know, smoking up in that room in this passage, just thinking, in which way does the message of Jesus engage with this guy's life? You know what the answer is? Is like, first, you just got to have a conversation with him and find out where he is, and then you'll start to see one of these images just stick up and say, that's the one. That's the honor. I mean, think about it, okay? I mean, imagine if you ran into a young woman who had spent her entire life being trafficked in the sex trade, okay? And you're kind of, you just kind of narrowed in on one of these things. It's like, well, you know you're a sinner, and you know you need someone to pay for that. And you just kind of think like, hey, it's actually true. It's actually in the Bible. And yet, I wonder if that's the image or that's the on-ramp that's going to bring her in. But I wonder what would happen if you talked about exile or enslavement. Then all of a sudden, she's drawn in and she says, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I need to understand. And as she understands that one, she digs more. And then she understands sin. And then she understands all the other images. And you just start to think, Oh, isn't it amazing that as Paul and all the New Testament authors were kind of writing to all these different cultures, they're using all these different images to say, it's so much bigger than this little transaction of payment. It is so much bigger. It is so much more life transforming. Imagine talking with a lawyer, a lawyer who has just seen criminal after criminal get off, you know, buy their way out. And they're just like, when will there ever be justice? Imagine you start talking about, well, there's a God of justice and he's perfectly just. That's the on-ramp. Think of talking to a war veteran, comes back and he has seen humanity at its worth. He's seen people do things he never thought they could do. He's seen himself do things he never thought he'd do. And all of a sudden he talk about the breaking of slavery and the power of sin over us or the breaking of shame and guilt and that we don't have to give account because Jesus gave account for us. All of a sudden you see that these, these amazing on-ramps all of a sudden speak to culture in a way that we never thought this small little idea that we simplified it to could. That the more we understand how amazing the atonement is, the more we discover how it impacts all of creation, the more we understand that it is the answer to the question that we have been looking for, how to bring us back in community with our creator and to bring creation back to the perfect place that it was designed and created to be and we have not stopped longing for since. The atonement it's this amazing mystery of God coming into the world and giving his life, substituting himself in our place, taking what we ought to have, taking death so that we could have life, so that we could, atonement, be at one with God. That's what the atonement is. That is what it is all about. That is that song we sang, says, death has lost its sting. That's why we worship Jesus because we spend our entire lives fighting the sting of death, the death in relationships, the death of our, what feels like our internal struggles and death, the death of our life. To say, how do you respond to the atonement? That song was so perfect. It says, I'm running to your arms. You run to the arms of the one who has taken death away from our world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I admit that there were times in this message where I just wanted to be done preparing. And now I've reached this place and I actually want to go back to the Bible and keep reading more about it to discover how great you are.
Father, would the atonement just continue to draw us in, to just continue to be amazed and to continue to grow in the mystery that draws us in closer and closer to understand who you are, what you have saved us from, and what you have saved us to. Jesus, I thank you for what this shows us about who you are. You are a relentless God who moves towards us even when we ignore you. And Lord, we take time now to sing and respond and worship the only God in the universe worth worshiping, the one who came and took our place. In Jesus' name, amen. Just place standing for a moment for the benediction. If you're new, benediction is basically a word, two words put together, benedicte, to speak good words or to speak blessing. And uh, it's my honor and privilege to bless you today. And uh, as one of my favorite authors said, he said, one of the incredible things about the atonement is it has a theme that resonates in every culture around the world because every culture, and you look at their movies, you look at their songs, you look at their books, resonates with the idea of a life sacrificed for another. That if that's the only thing you grasp at this moment, may that leave an insatiable, unstoppable desire to get to know the one who gave his life for you. And for those of you who are kind of, you're, you're on the fence, you're figuring it out, you're like, okay, it's interesting, it sounds good, I want to know more, or I'm ready, I want in, I want to trust, I want to place my trust in him. Uh, some of the lead teams and, and prayer uh, members of the Upper Room Community Church are going to be up here on the side, and they're ready to pray with you after. So uh, 